All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Hey guys, and welcome to our podcast, Your Brain on Science. Uh, I swear I'm going to like get our little jingle beat down because I'd like to have a little jingle that I sing when we say hello to you guys. <laughs> but thanks for listening to our brand new podcast. Um, and as always, if you like what we have to say, please subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Brain Science Pod. And this week, we're going to go over the basics of understanding a scientific research article, something that we are still honing as a skill, but is incredibly important to understanding what's going on in this ever-changing world. Yeah. And, you know, reading a scientific article is really not like reading a book or a news article, even. It's something of a beast of its own. Um, And it's really an acquired and cultivated skill, right? Something that I am working on every single day on getting better at doing and doing effectively, I think. Um, So this is why we wanted to really start our journey here and break down for you um, how we read scientific articles so we can all sort of start on this uh, same page and and start together. Exactly. So what we decided is we're going to walk you guys through reading an article and we've kind of broken this down into three main parts that have helped us along the way. So it's going to we're going to go through skimming, reading and interpreting the article. And so the first part is the skimming part. So when I first get a paper thrown on my desk or I find something really cool on Twitter that I want to learn more about, I start by just, you know, reading the title and giving it a skim for the abstract, which is normally uh, that first small paragraph at the beginning of the article. And sometimes um, it's like the first thing before you click for like a full text PDF. So it's just that little blurb. And then I'll look at the major headings and subheadings of the results and discussion sections, uh, just to kind of get an inkling for what the article is going to be talking about. And then I completely skip the methods section. Um, I don't skim that at all. And that's because for even me, someone who I consider an expert in my own like field, Sometimes it's extremely daunting and difficult to understand methods when the paper is talking about something that you're not completely familiar with. So um, especially for a non-specialist, it's really, really scary to kind of see all these weird jargony words. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not always necessary either to understand exactly what they did if they're doing like Western blots and what they use and what antibodies they used or whatever. I probably said that completely incorrect. Um, but <laughs> if, if you're not replicating the work, I don't know that it's the most important thing to read the method section, but we'll talk about it in a little bit. Um, it, it is very helpful when you're trying to understand if you have a question, right, about their study design or something very specific you saw in the results and you're like, oh, I don't really understand this. How they do this? How are they coming to this conclusion? Conclusion, then the methods is a really, really good resource. But this is definitely not the first place to start or to even skim because this will just confuse you. Um, and me personally, I, I'm just like, I'm never going to understand this, right? Because it's all it's this is very field specific. So exactly like, as a someone who's like a neuropharmacologist, I'm very familiar with like behavioral pharmacology and like some neuroscience, but even techniques within like the neuro field that are using 
like all of these vectors and all this, you know, stuff. I don't even want to get into understanding that because I'm going to end up having 16 tabs open, Googling every single method that they use. And that just takes a rabbit hole. Yeah, (laughs) down a rabbit hole and save that for the end if you're still really curious. Um, So after I'm just skimming the abstract and the subheadings and headings, I take note of the major research question and the main conclusion which is typically the first or last sentences in the abstract. And so kind of get a feel for what they want you to know just based off that first little paragraph. And then you can kind of go into the second part. Yeah, so the second part is going to be actually reading, right? Reading um, certain parts of this paper. Uh, So the first thing I start to read after the abstract and the major headings and subheadings um, is we read the introduction. Um, We read the introduction and we're going to refer back to that main question that we read in the abstract because this introduction really sets up uh, sort of the foundation for the question. This is also where the hypothesis is going to be. So here's where you really want to take note of all the background information that they're providing you with, um, their question, and then their hypothesis. And here's where you're going to ask yourself, so does their research question make sense? Is their hypothesis sound, right? Like, are they using all of the, the the information that they've provided you with, all of the references that they've cited, is the hypothesis, does that follow logically, right? Um, and then you have, you have to ask yourself, do I understand the point of the study, right? Are you following their logic, like how they've gotten from point A to point B in the question that they want to ask? Right, because um, the, yeah. the, the introduction itself should provide you with enough background information to follow the point of the paper. So if you're already confused just at the end of the introduction, that's probably not a good sign. Yeah, for for sure. This is like one of the, right, like this is specifically should be for people that are, are not experts in the field, right? This should cite all of that important information to take you from point A to point B to point C to get to question D and then hypothesis, the hypothesis, right? To make it very clear to you. So it's, it should be a clear story from A to B. And then the rest of the story is going to be what they did and actually what they found. So from here, um, what I like to do, what we like to do is go look at the figures. So this is going to be actually like the results and, and the graphs and stuff that they're providing you guys. Um, so we go look at the figures and the figure legends. Uh, typically, the figure legends are going to have about like a one sentence conclusion about the point of the figure. Um, and this is going to sort of orient you to what's going on in the figure. And it's going to tell you a little bit about what's going on um, and also say something about the statistics that they used. Um, so the most important thing here, the most important thing here, I cannot emphasize this enough, is that the data that is being shown is clear and that the statistical tests that they have done on their data are appropriate. Um, so you have to really, really look here and take note of the tests that they did, right? So the, that you're looking at the outcome and what you're reading on this graph and and what do they use? They use a one-tailed t-test <laughs> to figure out what data to show, what they're showing you. Um, and so once I've sort of made, taken note of the stats and and what the results are, um, I sort of write a one to two sentence summary of their results under every figure. And this is as I understand them and as I can clearly conclude from looking at the data, because as a reader, you should be able to conclude the point that they're going to talk to you about in the results section, right? This should be clear enough 
for you to understand. And this is sort of, you know, like a little bit aside from like fully understanding the statistics, but um, write down what you think is going on here and what the results are saying to you, right? With the stats in mind. Do you really um, do that? Do you really do that, Zarmin? I literally do. Yeah. So this is how my PI taught me how to read papers. So I am someone, okay, so we'll talk about this in a second, but like the results section is how uh, they present the data to you, right? How the, the writers of the paper, the researchers present the data to you. And it's going to, as much as they try not to, there might be some interpretation in there, right? There might They might not be telling you fully like all the statistical tests they ran to get to that point, all the comparisons that they've done. And, and it's not I, even on purpose, like too, yeah, when it's, it happens, and it's, and it's just... Exactly, exactly. And it's most of the time, right, not on purpose. Scientists are not evil, malicious people. Um, <laughs> but I am someone that is like pretty easily biased. If someone is like telling me something, I'll be like, oh, oh, cool, right? I'll, I'll read the results section and I'll look for what they're saying in the figures and the data. And that is not the best way to do it critically, right? So to sort of help myself, um, my PI really taught me, look at the results yourself, interpret them yourself and write your own like sentence, right? Like literally interpret them yourself. And then, and only then do you go um, and actually read the results uh, section and find where they reference the figures. So you read their explanation um, and can look at the, the figures and your interpretation at the same time. Um, so here you can note if like there was any, you know, like if there's a dissociation between what you're understanding and what they're saying, because here is typically where they're going to let you know if there's any overarching conclusions or if there's statements, right? And it's typically going to look like X is caused by Y. We saw X, so it can't be Y or so on and so forth. Some combination of that, right? Yeah, um, and it's, it's totally yeah. important to note that like, in science like there's a huge rule that like correlation is not Ugh. a causation so just because you see like this variable is like affected by this other variable so how for example here you have you said x is caused by y like nothing is definitively caused when you're exactly. looking at science right because mm -hmm. it's in a vacuum so you it would be better for a paper to say X is correlated with Y, or we saw X because this was like changed in Y, you know, but nothing like yeah. definitive. So yeah, through and we're, right, we're doing experimentation. It's through direct manipulation of certain variables that we're trying to understand what is caused, um, what X is caused by what, right? So really to have um, a straight, and this is where that logic in the in the introduction is gonna be very, very important. You can't have jumps in the logic. Um, and, and again, also there are some things that you can do statistically to make sure that you can say the right things, right? Um, and this is also a really good spot to say this. I keep bringing up stats. Um, with, without the appropriate stats and the appropriate comparisons, you cannot make certain claims and you want to be the most critical that you can be um, here, right? Because it's very often that, that, and this is, you know, again, like sometimes not the fault of the researchers. People are not doing this on purpose, um, but you might just run the wrong stats or you might just not have the full comparisons or you might do um, like have a priori assumptions that are just incorrect, things that you cannot assume. Um, and again, if you're not the most strong on like the statistics and like statistics in general, it is also okay to Google like what certain tests mean or like what is appropriate to 
what kind of data is appropriate to run certain stats on. Um, and now I've, I've noticed this, I think, I don't know, Lena, if you know this, but I think it might be a requirement that people have to provide their data to journals when they publish. Um, I think it so depends of, on the journal. So like some of them have like a database, like if you're doing like very mm -hmm. like high data set, heavy, like genomics, you have yeah. to your like data set. But I think yeah. for like still for like most basic research, you don't have to. Mm. See, I there are some like I've come across some articles recently in which they actually provide the data. So um, my lab, what we'll do when we have like journal club or whatever, if we are like iffy on some of the stats that they did, you could take the data and run your own stats, right? Like you could. Yeah, we sometimes it's like easy to do that, but not maybe not for like a lay person. But, you know, that's out there. If you know, that's like a fun your stats. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We should do a stats episode and talk about Ooh. this, like, you know, one tail versus two tailed or like. Yeah. Ah, for a different day stay tuned yeah. yeah stay tuned i think that would be a really great idea um yeah so okay so oftentimes you know when you get to this point um that there might be some things that you might want clarity on so the group size of whatever population that they used um you might be unclear on some of the variables in the experiment uh themselves um so here is where you go to the method section for further clarification on some whatever specific thing that you're confused about. Um, or maybe it's just some like general information, right? Uh, and especially for people who aren't good with jargon or method explanations, um, or just might not be well versed in this literature, uh, there's some big things to look for, right? So here are the things that um, I think that we identify as, and as important. So one, I guess I keep harping on this, but were statistics done uh, and were they appropriate, right? Is there a control group? Uh, so for example, positive versus negative controls, do they exist here? Yeah, and so that is super important because a lot of studies don't have positive and negative controls or do one or the other. So like a positive control, for example, would be something that you know is going to produce the same outcome that you're hoping that your like experimental variable will produce. So it's kind of just like, um, you know, this is a surefire thing that'll produce this effect so we can compare it, our experiment to this. Um, there's also negative controls. So this would be a control where you don't want anything to happen. So if you're testing like a new drug and it's similar to another drug. So if I'm testing a novel psychedelic that's supposed to be similar to DMT, then I would test DMT as my positive control and I would test like saline as my negative control. So just kind of see like something that does produce the effect we want and then something that doesn't. Exactly. So it has a predicted outcome, right? It has a predicted outcome that is well documented and you know that it should be a certain way. That way, if something is off with your controls, then you know to be wary of the data that you collected, right? It's not as easy to make claims about the data that you actually manipulated and were and were trying to figure out. So that's one thing, right? So another thing um, is how many subjects were there in the study, right? And this can be um, in, in the clinical side of things, humans, how many humans were in the study were enrolled in this clinical trial, um, or on the basic research side of things, how many non-human subjects, so rodents or lab rats or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and so for clinical trials, there's like a couple different ways to look at it. So a lot of like um, preliminary, like proof of concept studies, they'll only have like 10 to 20 participants, um, which is fine. And that's just like a feasibility study. Um, and then they'll move on to the next phase, which will typically have 20 to 50. And then the next phase will have 50 to 100. And a typical human study should have 
uh, theoretically, 100 or more participants that are all equally representative of like the population that is being supposedly tested. Uh, and then for like non-human uh, subject studies, the, the sample size is usually a lot lower because um, there's less variability with non-human subjects. Um, so, you know, for rodents, it's typically like, you know, six to 12, I feel like is like a normal thing. Yeah, that's a good, period. yeah. Yeah. And even with cells and like molecular stuff, there's like, you know, specific, like a lot of times you'll see like three replicates of 16 cells or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and replication, I also wanted to know, it was super important too. Like if they note that this study was done once, I would probably question that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And right, like, so if it's a proof of concept study, the whole point is that this is the first time it's happening. But if they're making claims about, oh, yeah, like, we've seen X, Y, and Z. And now we're trying to like build off of that. And maybe like this has been done before. And this has been supported. But if you don't see this in other papers, you don't see replicates of this, then you want to be wary and, and sort of um, careful about the conclusions that are being drawn. Right. And that's why there's so many phases in like clinical trials is because you have a feasibility yeah. phase, right? And then you replicate that in your larger sample size. And then if that's the case, then you move on to like approval type studies. Exactly. Yeah. Replication, very, very, very important. And you know what? Oftentimes he, like in, in replication is where you'll find that those like small things that you cannot change are so important, like from lab to lab, from country to country, There, there's different protocols for everything. And sometimes it becomes really hard to replicate uh, certain studies, right? And it's might not have to do with the content, but you know, sometimes it does have to do with the content. And that's very, very helpful because you wanna make sure you know that you're pinning down the outcome to very specific, uh, like very specific uh, variables and measures and, and maybe manipulations in your experiments. But exactly. yeah, so that's all super, super important. Um, and then bringing us to our final point, um, is there the possibility of researcher bias? Um, so not only um, like in the content of what you're reading, but like in the experiments themselves, right? So are they blinded or unblinded? And this is going to be both for human clinical trials and also for basic research. Yeah, so being blinded just simply means that you don't know what your experimental groups are getting. So if you're testing um, like psilocybin versus placebo, you don't know whether or not the person is receiving psilocybin or placebo, and that person also doesn't know what they're receiving. Receiving? Receiving. <laughs> <laughs> but placebing? Placebing. Yeah, we're placebing now. Uh, so that's wait, like wait, wait. So let's talk about the placebing, isn't it? It's just something <laughs> very, something so interesting and weird, right? With psychedelics research, is like how hard is it to give people a placebo? Because you're gonna know if you're tripping or if you're not tripping. So being blinded has been, I think, a pretty interesting challenge, a pretty unique challenge in the field of psychedelics. Oh yeah, definitely. There, there's been a lot of different. Uh, kind of like, do we do an inactive dose of the psychedelic yeah. blind, or do we use like cannabis, or do we use diphenhydramine like uh, and just like knock people out? And, yeah, like, or like uh, some yeah. studies we're looking at dextromorphine, mm. so robo tripping. <laughs> like, yeah. So yeah, that's like another huge thing with psychedelic research. We could probably talk about that for a whole entire episode. Yeah, too. for sure. Um, but yeah, so that's. That blinding is a difficult thing in clinical trials. It's definitely a lot easier in non-human subjects because 
Um, you know, the mice don't know what they're getting. And uh, the humans who are scoring them, you can have somebody who didn't administer the drug score the behaviors that you're interested in. So that kind of makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, for sure. It's time to interpret what you read. So we typically go to the conclusion section after this. And the biggest thing that I look for here is if they address the reasons why their study could be interpreted the way they interpreted it and differently and how they address the other conclusions that could be made. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, this is not a psychedelic related example. I've been really into chickens recently, so (laughs) um, bear with me here. But so if a study says that duck eggs have more protein than chicken eggs because they are bigger, we showed that all the eggs we measured were bigger than chicken eggs. That's their conclusion. So my questions would be, well, what if there's a different way of measuring the eggs? Did they measure them by weight? or mass, or height, or circumference, like, how did they measure these eggs? And then have other studies shown the same results, that replication that we were talking about? And did those chickens have anything wrong with them? Were they mutant chickens? I don't know. And then (laughs) were the, this is just so silly, Um, and then were the ducks and chickens on different diets? Like, did one receive sunflower seeds and one receive pumpkin seeds, you know? Those are important factors. Um, So, It's just generally important for researchers to address all these possible outcomes and give the reasons on why they may or may not see other outcomes. Yeah. And also, you know, going back to one of our earlier points, um, it is hard, right, to to prove, not prove, to sort of have definitive outcomes for direct causation. But if we're saying that duck eggs have more protein protein because they're bigger, you need to have a damn good reason for why you think being bigger produces more protein, right? And this is why the duck eggs have more protein than the chicken eggs. And it's just the size that it's not everything else, right? You have to make sure that you're also like pointing out, like it cannot be due to other things, or if it can be, then you also mentioned that like perhaps um, X, Y, and Z, right? Like these mechanisms can also lead to more protein and in, in bigger eggs or, or whatever else the factors are. But basically like literally address what everything that you can find. And it's going to be impossible to like in a conclusion to address everything. Right. There thing. is a word limit. Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. There is totally a word limit. Um, but also like responsibly think about the most important things, right? And address them in your conclusion. Exactly. Because duck eggs very well may have more protein than chicken eggs. I actually don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I know. If anyone knows the answer to that, um, like, please comment. And send it to us. Yeah, send it to us and we'll give you a sticker. How about that? Maybe we'll give you a duck egg. <laughs> Probably not. But, <laughs> but anyways, so um, after, you know, you're kind of figuring out, um, did they address all these different outcomes? If you go to the bottom of the discussion section, um, there's either a subheading for a conclusion or there's a last paragraph that typically has the main conclusions of the paper. And you can ask yourself, are they really reflective of the results that you saw in the figures and or are they reflective of the results that you read? Is there a consensus between the two? And does the question that they're asking still make sense within the conclusion? Or is it over an overgeneralization? So if you read their original research question and you were like, okay, you know, the introduction makes sense, the rationale makes sense, but then you go to the conclusion and they're talking about some complete other thing, like that's really important to note. Um, and then, you know, I just want to say like, I'm a researcher, Zarmin's a researcher. We get super excited about the work we're doing, even if no one else cares about it. 
So we spend a lot of time working on these experiments. Like I have papers that I've spent like two years working on experiments and then another year writing the paper. And like, so we spend a lot of time with these articles. And so sometimes, you know, we're super excited and we might accidentally overgeneralize or go a little wild with our interpretations. And, you know, it's up to other scientists and our editors and our reviewers and our readers to be critical about the research and to determine the extent of which that research influences the lives of others. Yeah, for sure. So it's also like our responsibility to be careful and critical as much as we possibly can to make sure that research is a benefit uh, to the public and putting out as much factual information as possible. Yeah. So on that, um, another big thing to note when reading uh, articles and and research, and this is a little bit uh, like separated from the content of the experiments themselves, um, is make sure that you guys checked the conflict of interest sections or the disclosures at the end of, I think they're usually at the end of each article, or if you're like online, they should be um, somewhere on that first page. Um, and I'm going to say this, especially with psychedelic science and its current state, people are out there and they're trying to win, like make money. We are, this is capitalism, right? We live in a capitalistic society. Isn't it like corpidelic? Isn't that like the term? For... Is that a thing? Have oh, you never what? heard of corpidelic? I have never. Oh, it's like the, the psychedelic corporations that are like out okay, there. So we live in a corpidelic world, guys. So make sure you are reading these conflict of interest sections. Um, scientists are required to disclose any financial or personal conflicts that can interfere with research interpretation. Um, like if you have like, I don't know, like interest in like stocks or like, um, for example, if you're reading a paper and someone's researching how psilocybin affects neuroinflammation, um, but the like the first author on that paper are is a CSO of a company who has a patent for psilocybin to treat inflammation, they have a stake in the outcome of that research, right? They very much benefit from how the research is going to look to other people and what it's going to say. Um, so that re- research should likely be looked at with a very critical eye and it should absolutely be done, uh, replicated, interpreted, analyzed by someone that is outside of their organization that doesn't stand to benefit um, from from this research. And in a, in a monetary way, right? Like we all benefit from the research that's being put out there and, and how like people interpret it and the press that it gets, right? Like you want papers to get the press that they deserve. Um, You want to be careful that you're not doing this for your personal interest. It is your responsibility, our responsibility as scientists to make sure that we're not doing this for personal gain, right? And just be careful. This is corporate Alec, guys. (laughs) And there's nothing wrong, too, with, like, the scientists who go to industry, start companies. And, like, I just want to say that because, like, you know, but they're still required to put that there. And it's still something to think about. Like, I know a lot of great scientists that also work in industry and started their own companies, but they're, like, they're chill. They, like, are doing it for the greater good. They're not doing it to be rich and famous. So, yeah. Just make sure people are disclosing things, right? It's, and it's fine. Like, it's a thing and it's totally and that's why these are there are these safeguards in place right you should absolutely be able to do things like this like be a chief scientific officer that'd be sick right <laughs> but i know it's the dream like <laughs> yeah so quite literally yeah uh, it's the dream so live your dream live the corporate dream um but make sure you're not lying to people i think that's the biggest thing is just be responsible with what you're putting out there because ultimately it is our responsibility right yeah, like science is nothing if there's no integrity and like rigor behind it. So a hundred percent. Yeah. But so we hope that what we said today kind of helps you understand 
research and just remember it's not a skill that happens overnight. This is something um, I personally have been honing for like 10 years at this point. <laughs> like probably I think I read my first research article when I was like 16. So yeah, um, I just, I'm 26. Hey, uh, but you know, uh, have my PhD before I'm 30. It's fine. Um, <laughs> humble brag, but anyways, so unfortunately the way that these research articles are written, it's not for the public, right? It's for scientists for scientists and for funding. So the interpretation of results can go every single which way, especially when the research gets picked up by mainstream news media. And so we're hoping that some of this advice that we gave you today about how to really dissect these articles helps and that you can read with a critical eye because with so much news and information coming at us every single day from every way, uh, especially with the rapidly growing and changing field of psychedelics, it's really important for us to take a step back from all that hype and really just like Zarmin said and emphasize using our critical eye. Yeah. You know, it's so exciting as someone who has kind of been in the psychedelic field for quite some time now, it's it's recently been getting just obviously so much press, but I have just like random people when they find out about the work I do be like, oh my God, like I heard about that and I read this one paper and then will go on to tell me this like crazy result that the paper that I know very well did not say, right? It's, it's very interesting and it, it can't be helped because this is just like a field that is, is prone to that, right? People are going to want to interpret things in a way. And and also, I, I want to say, like, people are starving for, like, the, a one-size-fits-all panacea solution for things. That's just not the way the world works. Um, so I, I feel like I was, like, very doom and gloom with the make sure you're looking at the stats, make sure, like, corporate, corporate delic in America and blah, blah, blah. But it is very exciting. And I want us to be very, very excited about it. But this is just to say, you know, like, let's be critical and let's be let's be responsible readers and consumers and let's not believe everything. And it's, there are so many also barriers to being critical, right? Like I come, I'm an immigrant. I come from a household that speaks um, a different language. My parents, their interpretation of current events is from the news and it's from the way that reporters report these things. And usually it's very, you know, it's very generalized and you're going to have the most hype interpretation of things. So recognizing that there are plenty of, and that is not the only barrier, right, to actually critically understanding science. Um, I think recognizing that um, and just working, working as hard as you can and the best that you can to make sure you're consuming responsibly, I think is very, very important in this age of hyper consumerism that we're being bombarded with things 24 7 you know that's just my two bits <laughs> yeah I feel that 100% I notice that when I tell people what I do like like you know they're like oh so what do you do for a living and I'm like oh I'm you know a PhD student and that's all I say and then they're like oh what do you study and I'm like pharmacology and then they're like <laughs> oh but like so what's your like topic and I'm like oh I study psychedelics and I'm like why didn't you start with that oh my god and then they like tell me like this ridiculous story about like this trip that they had or they'll be like yeah I know I do shrooms but like I'm like I didn't ask you any personal information like awesome at all. <laughs> I love the field and I'm super excited to see what it has in store for us and I'm super excited to dive into more topics with you that are you know 
you know, some controversial ones, some fun ones. We're going to, you know, have a great time. So it's going to be really, really great. So thank you guys so much for listening today. Uh, Please check out our blog post that's going to be accompanying this podcast for an example of an annotated research article. Um, And this is really to help you on your journey to understanding hard science um, a little bit better. So as always, if you like our content, please give us a follow, subscribe, share with your friends, reach out to us, talk to us. We love that. So very exciting to talk to you guys and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks, everybody.